Welcome to the Abbott Seeks Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Abbott Jr. Tonight, we continue with the second of six installments exploring how Facebook is rapidly eroding American culture, decency, and civility. Last week, we explored the most significant risk related to all forms of social media. Put simply, these new communication platforms uncompromisingly downgrade human exchange. How do they do that? They discount the healing power of the human touch. It is impossible to physically touch someone when conversing through social media. As Facebook matures into a surrogate form of human communication, which I assure you it will, this dynamic will reformat human interaction and gradually eliminate touch from the public sphere. You're already seeing the birth pangs of a culture that now perceives the human touch as a liability that threatens the overall health of a society. Last week, I supported this argument by pointing to preschool and kindergarten teachers. These are people who now fear giving their students a hug due to the legal ramifications that may ensue. If a male were to touch a female on the shoulder at work just to congratulate her on a minor accomplishment, he could now be looking at a sexual harassment claim. I also really want to reemphasize a second point I made during the episode. Remember my integration of the sports analogy into the spectrum of social media? To those of you who are sports fans, what is the definition of a good quarterback? Is it not a man who throws the ball directly in stride to where his receiver is going to be? If a quarterback were to throw the ball to where the receiver was standing at the point he saw him, he'd never complete the pass. What's the point of the analogy? Life is not stationary. The same attribute must be applied when we seek to analyze American culture. The man who assesses our various cultural institutions based on what he sees at a specific point in time, in other words, now, is a fool. You don't assess the health of institutions based on where they are today, but also where they are going to be tomorrow. You must remember this concept as I make my way through today's argument which is ultimately predicated on the conviction that Facebook will only continue to grow in influence, usage, and engagement with the passage of time. If I were the quarterback and Facebook were my receiver, I am certainly not going to throw the ball to where Facebook is today as it's running its route through the culture. I am throwing the ball or my argument to where it will be tomorrow. Please take this warning to heart because that's what this series of arguments will be. It's a warning to society in search of basic civility. This is also the reason I'm so hostile to the idea of my children entering the American school system. Today, today, these schools are forbidden from teaching an absolute standard of morality. They refuse to teach financial literacy. They refuse to teach civic responsibility. They refuse to discipline students. They refuse to show affection to young children, which is what I contend any young child needs more than anything. They are subverting a classical academic curriculum in favor of exaggerating the importance of sexual preference. They openly reject the teachings of the Bible, which is the most influential book in the history of the world. If school is my open receiver, that's where it stands today. Tomorrow, the vines of our legal system will completely ensnare the institution to where it actively siphons any modicum of traditional values out of your children. If I am your quarterback's coach, please, please learn how to read the routes. 
If the public school system is truly your only option, you had better be the most vocal member of your PTA. And you're going to need to work overtime to inculcate your children with the values you want them to have to live a noble and virtuous life. Many people attempt to assess the health of a cultural institution as of where it stands today. I just explained that I try and evaluate it as of where it will stand tomorrow. But just as dangerous as those people who evaluate it as of today are those people who evaluate the health of a cultural institution through the historical lens of their own experience, those people who make the assessment based on the past. I know a great many of people who simply cannot grasp that the public school system has changed. It is now at the point where it might be threatening and even impeding the development of our children. This isn't hyperbole. If you refuse to teach literacy financially, if you refuse to teach the laws of human nature, you refuse to teach the values of integrity and discipline and everything else I just referenced, you are crippling the ability of a child to mature later in life. To those people who ignore this reality, to focus on the virtues that schools presented when they attended back in the 60s, the 70s, or the 1980s. This isn't just static thinking, and this certainly isn't dynamic thinking. This is backward thinking. These are the quarterbacks who take the snap, turn around, and throw the ball into the back of the end zone. Okay, I really wanted to revisit that analogy because I did a pretty poor job of explaining it last week, and it's of critical importance. Life is dynamic. It is not static. Our cultural institutions are dynamic. They are not static. This is why people who contend that slippery slope arguments do not exist or that there's no such thing as a slippery slope are among the most foolish members of our society. They are the quarterbacks who throw the ball to where the receiver used to be. Yet, despite never completing a pass, they tend to ascend to political office, enter the bureaucracy, or they earn tenure as liberal arts university professors. Is there any wonder why so many Americans believe our country is on the wrong track? This is unquestionably the longest introduction in the history of the Abbott Speaks podcast. And I think it's rather fitting because today's episode is going to go into overtime. This is the second installment of the Facebook social media series, and I've entitled today's program, Facebook is a Technological Drug. Your 45-minute road to wisdom begins right now. Social media is one of the most addictive agents in our culture. The analytics firm Flurry reports that as of February 2017, a year ago, Americans spent five hours per day on their mobile phones, with over a half of that time being logged into social media. Next time you're in a social setting, I want you to pay attention to just how many people are engrossed and captivated by the glare of their cell phone. Whether it be at the mall, the grocery store, a restaurant, even driving 70 miles an hour down the highway, we can no longer resist the urge to connect to our phones. As Flurry points out, when we do, we're most frequently doing so to access social media. Our addiction to social networking is worsening, and this is intentional. As I've explained at length, most of the major social network companies, as well as the social content creators, they toil every day to make their network so addictive that you cannot resist them. 
Dr. Krista Peck holds a Master of Science degree in Counseling and Psychology. And five years ago, she wrote an article entitled The Role of Dopamine in Internet Craving. We've talked about dopamine briefly during the two-part Human Masterpiece series, but I do want to revisit the concept, and I want to read an excerpt from her piece. She writes, Have you ever noticed the rush you get from checking your email, Googling a subject of interest, browsing your Twitter feed, receiving a, a text from your love interest, peeking at what your friends are up to on Facebook, or other similar internet-fueled activities? Did you notice that the anticipation of receiving the information you had sought out was often more gratifying than the receipt of the information itself? A biologically based need for seeking drives these internet activities that you come to crave. The culprit that propels your seeking behavior is a simple organic chemical or neurotransmitter that we call dopamine. Dopamine is a key player in the brain system concerned with reward-driven learning. Dopamine has many functions in the brain, including roles in behavior and cognition, voluntary movement, motivation, punishment, and reward, sleep, dreaming, mood, attention, just to name a few. Dopamine is released by rewarding experiences such as food, sex, drugs, and neutral stimuli, which become associated with these things. Peck continues, new studies suggest that dopamine regulates the motivation to act. Recent observations indicate that the brain is more active when people are anticipating a reward rather than just receiving one. This is because we are wired to seek and to really enjoy the thrill of the hunt. Examples of seeking behavior can be seen in various human activities, such as rainforest tribes hunting and gathering to ensure survival. Young adults ritualistically going out on weekends to find fun and potential sex partners. And comparison shopping when looking for the perfect new piece of furniture to add to your home. In the digital age, we have various ways to send and receive information, which can be a blessing and a curse. We have tools that allow us to satisfy our information-seeking cravings with instant gratification. The internet can ensnare you in a dopamine loop since it makes the process of reward-seeking so quick and easy. Before you know it, you've got several tabs open in your internet browser so you can monitor and engage with your various social media channels while you try to get some work done. Over time, you may add more channels and or check them even more frequently. This all starts sounding a lot like addiction, doesn't it? Well, you have to remember that the thing between you and the internet is a pesky neurotransmitter called dopamine. End transcript. Dopamine is the central chemical in your brain that regulates how you perceive and experience pleasure. It affects your memory. It affects your learning process. It controls how you learn information. Your brain is essentially a computer that has been hardwired with neurotransmitters, synapses, neurons, all of which help your brain to communicate with the rest of your body. The creators of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the like are highly educated people. They are keenly aware of the vulnerabilities of the human brain, and they are also highly motivated people. But what drives their ambition? What would be your response? Before you speak, it's helpful to understand the mindset of the secular humanist. The humanist rejects the Judeo-Christian ethic, which is primarily constructed upon two distinctly separate contentions. The first is that there is an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and eternal God who created the heavens and the earth. For those of you who struggle with the omni-prefix, then just think all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, and timeless. 
He is absolute in nature, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The second, human nature is fundamentally and inherently flawed beyond repair. The secular humanist rejects both of these contentions. The secular humanist does not recognize the absolute sovereignty of God. In fact, he translates the evil that he sees throughout the world as evidence of the absence of God. Second, the humanist rejects the contention that human nature is inherently flawed. He will accept that some, maybe even many human beings are flawed, but he simultaneously believes that the power to gradually improve and perfect the human experience rests within our capacity as human beings. So, what is the driving ambition of the social media creator? What makes people like Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, Jack Dorsey of Twitter, and Kevin Seistrom of Instagram tick? Is it a desire for money and wealth? No, hardly. These secular humanists and the countless others who work alongside them are captivated by the idea that they can take a creation of their own hands and use it to gradually perfect the human experience. It's as simple as that. If you reject the existence of God, then by implication, you believe that man is the absolute sovereign entity on planet Earth. And if you believe that man is the absolute sovereign, then again, by implication, you believe that man is God. If you believe that man is God, then you naturally reject the notion that utopia is unattainable. All we need to do is create the perfect environment in which humanity can thrive. Let me get this straight. You're saying that the driving ambition of people like Mark Zuckerberg is to gradually perfect the human experience? That's exactly what I'm saying. Now, for some reason, I feel moved to quote scripture. I don't do this often, but let me read from the 27th chapter of the book of Proverbs. Enemies disguise themselves with their lips, but in their hearts they harbor deceit. Though their speech is charming, do not believe them, for seven abominations fill their hearts. Their malice may be concealed by deception, but their wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Michael, are you saying Mark Zuckerberg is an enemy? That he harbors deceit? He's wicked and full of malice? Well, when a man openly intimates that his mission is to replace the role of the church, I tend to take that man at his word. Just last June, Mark Zuckerberg led a rally of sorts for Facebook users in Chicago. During the event, he placed the social services being provided by his social network on par with those being provided by the Christian church or by Little League baseball organizations. He noted that membership in all kinds of groups has declined as much as a quarter. Thus, he interprets that Americans are desperately searching for something that can unify their lives. And what is this unifying agent? Why, Facebook, of course! During the gathering, Zuckerberg unveiled Facebook's updated purpose. Quote, Give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. If we can do this, it will not only turn around the whole decline in community membership that we've seen for decades, but it will start to strengthen our social fabric and bring the world closer together, end quote. Mark Zuckerberg believes that faith in him and in his product can bring purpose to the world. If you are so full of pride and arrogance that you believe that you, as one individual, can bring purpose to millions of people, 
Does that not support exactly what I'm saying, that he believes that man is the absolute sovereign, and that means that man is God in his opinion? If man is God, man is infallible. If man is infallible, it's within his power to bring purpose to your life. That's what he's saying. Interestingly, this is the same Mark Zuckerberg whose company routinely suppressed news stories of interest to conservative readers from the social network's influential trending news section. Hmm, I guess it's community for me, but not for thee, right, Mark? But again, as a Christian man, I believe that man is fundamentally flawed. So Mark Zuckerberg's double standard makes perfect sense to me. If you reject the fallen nature of man, however, how can you possibly reconcile such an obvious, disparate, and unequal treatment of human beings from someone who is so openly professing that he's tolerant and inclusive of everybody? How do you reconcile that? That's irreconcilable. But then again, that's secular humanism. It's a worldview constructed upon a fundamental misunderstanding of human nature. It thinks that human nature is essentially good. It isn't. It's essentially flawed. But I want to transition into a discussion that I purposefully omitted from my preface to this six-part series. Just six weeks ago, Facebook's director of research, David Ginsburg, and research scientist Moira Burke finalized a study to investigate the overall impact Facebook has upon the health of an individual. What was their overall conclusion? The Facebook researchers found that using Facebook in the way that most people use Facebook, which is mindlessly scrolling through an endless field of content, is extremely detrimental to people's mental health. The company's director of research wrote, quote, In general, when people spend a lot of time passively consuming information, they report feeling worse afterwards. End quote. In another quote, Facebook researchers hypothesized that, quote, Reading about others online might lead to negative social comparison, and perhaps even more so than offline, since people's posts are often more curated and flattering. Another theory is that the internet takes people away from social engagement in person, end quote. In other words, Facebook has finally discovered what its users have known for years. Spending hours of your life scrolling through a feed of other people's luxury vacation photos, concert and sporting events, and glorified selfies will undoubtedly make you unhappy. Now let's not forget, Facebook is a business. As any business owner well knows, one of the few constants in the world of business is managing risk. Risk is everywhere. But for most businesses, these risks emanate from competitive industry pressures, changing market appetites, or the need to stay ahead of technological advancements. I want you to now do a bit of role-playing with me. Let's pretend that you and I are executives at the Facebook company. So, Mr. or Mrs. Executive, what type of risk are we dealing with here? With the overall findings and conclusions of this research, we, the Facebook executives, are now in possession of information confirming that the use of our platform is extremely detrimental to the mental health of our customer base. And what do we, Facebook, what do we essentially do? Think back to our core business model. We constantly sell the message that we make the world smaller. We make the world more interconnected. We help people communicate. But how do we do this? 
we have constructed a platform that enables people to connect from anywhere in the world using their computer or other mobile device. It's instant communication. The value of our product is that we speed up human contact. If we were to use terminology from the world of accounting and finance, we place a premium on speed. Now, offsetting this premium is the discount that we place on physical human contact. In keeping with our core conviction, the essence of our business model is to reformat basic human exchange by gradually replacing face-to-face human contact with virtual engagement through our virtual electronic platform. I talked about this at length last week. With this information, let's now answer my question from above. What type of risk are we dealing with here? Is this a basic business risk such as what I've described? Is this a risk due to competitive industry pressures? No. We have nearly cornered the market with our product. Is this a risk due to changing market appetites? No. If anything, statistical data shows an increased reliance on our product over time. Is this a risk due to technological advancement? No. Again, we are by far the industry leader in virtual communication. So what is this risk? When this report comes across our desk, we are given information that our business, our product, our platform is harmful and damaging not only to our customer base, but this harm might even extend to those who aren't using our platform. This is a massive ethical concern since vast swaths of the American public, including a disproportionate amount of all young people, are using Facebook for hours a day. Do you know what a moral hazard is? A moral hazard is a situation in which one party gets involved in a risky event, knowing that it is protected against the risk because another party is incurring the cost. Facebook is involving itself in the risky event of overhauling the way that all human beings have communicated since the beginning of time. Now, who's incurring this risk, though? Who's incurring the cost of the risk? Is it Facebook? No, it's the American people. The report that was just handed to us, or to you, the Facebook executive, is academically researched proof that our core business model constitutes a moral hazard to society. This isn't a theory, guys. This isn't an opinion. I've just read you the technical definition of the term moral hazard. And Facebook, our company, is a moral hazard to society. So, as an executive, what would you do with this newfound information? Pretty troubling, isn't it? But alas, we are not the highly paid executives we sometimes wish we were. So let's analyze how the actual Facebook executives chose to react to see if we can take a lesson from those who hold these esteemed positions. Now, I've scoured numerous publicly available source documents, and I discovered that Facebook's response to this information featured the deployment of a four-pronged strategy. Phase one of the strategy could best be summarized as investing in research and development. Facebook committed to investing $1 million to better understand the relationship between media technologies, youth development, and overall well-being. That's a pretty good gesture, right? $1 million, that's a lot of money. And it will certainly go a long way in helping the company understand these relationships. You know, you can always measure the sincerity of a person 
the sincerity of an individual or the sincerity of a company based on the lengths that they are willing to go and the sacrifices they are willing to make for the exclusive benefit of other people. Facebook is a company that reported total revenues of $40.6 billion in 2017. This $1 million investment, that represents 0.0025% of total revenues. Now, you're probably like me, and you find it a bit challenging to mentally comprehend numbers when there are just so many zeros involved. Therefore, let me give you an alternative way of digesting this investment. The median household income in the United States has now risen to slightly over $59,000 per year. If an individual were to personally sacrifice 0.0025 of his or her median household income, that would translate to $1.45. The funds would be insufficient to purchase three postage stamps, one drink from Starbucks, or a value meal from any quick service restaurant. But again, most people don't think in terms of percentages. Most people think in terms of dollars and cents. You know what $1 million does? It sells a message that you're committed to action. It is perhaps the least amount of money that Facebook could possibly spend while appeasing the expectations of the general public. This solution essentially sends a virtue signal that Facebook is good, noble, and again, virtuous. But let's grade the action, shall we? If you are sincerely concerned with a material issue, if you market yourself as an enterprise concerned with attaining social progress and furthering public good, don't you think you might do a little more than just shake down the couch cushions to find a dollar and 45 cents? The strategic action is wholly inconsistent with your pretentious claims to care for the welfare of the general public, and it does nothing to evidence a true concern with any potential negative societal impacts that arise on account of your social network. Phase one of Facebook's four-pronged strategy to address the moral hazard it poses to society is an F, unquestionably an F, $1.45. That is pretty revealing. Now, let's move on to phase two. I think this could best be described as promoting changes to overall software delivery. Now, on December 18th, just three days after the press release broke in which their own executives acknowledged how their platform is bad for the general public, Facebook announced a new feature to deal with the problem. So what is this new product enhancement? They've introduced the snooze function. With snooze, users can temporarily block any of their friends' posts from surfacing on their feed. Have a friend who's taking a vacation and blitzing you with beach photos that are making you jealous? Just block them. But let's look a little deeper behind this aim. One of Facebook's main problems is that users succumb to feelings of jealousy and envy because they're measuring their personal lives to the glorified lives of others through social media. In essence, Facebook's executives want to reduce jealousy and reduce envy from their customer base. Phase two of their strategy is to launch essentially the it's not me, it's you initiative. What does this strategy truly accomplish? Well, practically, it takes a user's social media envy and redirects it from one member of his or her social circle and places it upon another. The strategy proposes that users make no net reduction to their overall time spent on the platform. So if casting a gaze upon social media tends to produce feelings of loneliness, envy, isolation, and depression, 
how does redirecting user attention within the platform improve any of this emptiness? Facebook's targeted solution proposes no net change in time spent on social media, just a redirection of the user's attention. Since the it's not me, it's you tactic does nothing to reduce overall time spent on social media, phase two of Facebook's four-pronged strategy to address the moral hazard it poses to society also receives an F. We now find ourselves halfway through the Facebook strategic plan. It is awfully difficult to suggest that either of these first two proposals take this concern seriously. In fact, it sure seems like executive management is outright ignoring the suggestion that their virtual platform has any negative impact upon society whatsoever. Neither phase one nor phase two features an overall reduction of time spent on Facebook, and the company is throwing a paltry dollar and 45 cents to truly understand the impact between social media and youth development. In fact, to me, this sure sounds like willful negligence or a conscious disregard for the best interests of either their customer base or society at large. So let's hope the second half of the strategic plan provides a better outlook. Phase three of the Facebook strategic plan? I think you could say it features concerted efforts to strengthen overall public relations. Now, the information that we have in our possession, that's a serious accusation. So Facebook now needs to improve its image in the marketplace. How do you do this? You hire a public relations team. Public relations or PR is how large corporations address the problem of negative publicity. To be successful with any PR campaign, you need to have a clear and compelling message with which you can sway public opinion. And this message needs to resonate. What is the message Facebook executives have chosen to sell to the general public? It's brilliant. They have chosen to make a clear delineation between what they define as passive engagement versus active engagement on their website. Facebook appears to concede the point that passive engagement is bad for its consumers. Listen carefully, though, to how they word this. Is this really a concession? Here's the excerpt from their press release. Quote, When people spend a lot of time passively consuming information, reading but not interacting with people, they report feeling worse afterwards. In one experiment, University of Michigan students randomly assigned to read Facebook for 10 minutes were in a worse mood at the end of the day than students assigned to post or talk to friends on Facebook. Though the causes aren't clear, researchers hypothesize that reading about others online might lead to negative social comparison, and perhaps even more so than offline, since people's posts are often more curated and flattering. Again, we already read this, another theory is that the internet takes people away from social engagement in person, end quote. When engaged in the perpetual war on public opinion, it is not about winning the battle. It's about winning the war. Metaphorically speaking, Facebook just conceded the Battle of Bunker Hill, so to speak. Just as the Redcoats won that Revolutionary War battle, those who are critical of Facebook seem to have won the battle in convincing Americans that passive Facebook engagement is harmful for the culture. When it comes to the war, though, here's where Facebook really sends out its artillery. This is masterful. Pay attention. The second excerpt from the press release says this. On the other hand, actively interacting with people 
especially sharing messages, posts, and comments with close friends and reminiscing about past interactions is linked to improvements in well-being. This ability to connect with relatives, classmates, and colleagues is what drew many of us to Facebook in the first place. And it's no surprise that staying in touch with these friends and loved ones brings us joy and strengthens our sense of community. A study we conducted with Robert Kraut at Carnegie Mellon University found that people who sent or received more messages, comments, and timeline posts reported improvements in social support, depression, and loneliness. The positive effects were even stronger when people talked with their close friends online. Simply broadcasting status updates wasn't enough. People had to interact one-on-one with others in their network. Other peer-reviewed longitudinal research and experiments have found similar positive benefits between well-being and active engagement on Facebook. Listen to the words from the second part of their press release. Improvements in well-being strengthens our sense of community. Improvements in social support, positive effects, similar positive benefits. That's a far cry from the way the passive activity was phrased, isn't it? The passive argument used these words. The causes aren't clear. Researchers hypothesize might lead to negative social comparison. Here's the message that Facebook is selling as part of their PR campaign. Listen, our research and other academic literature suggests that it's about how you use social media that matters when it comes to your well-being. Take it one step further. Isn't Facebook essentially employing the same strategy here as they did in phase two? Don't make any adjustments to the length of time you use our product. Just make an effort to be more active and more engaged when you're online. In fact, if you're more engaged, you'll find you're going to be happier. So in reality, you might want to consider increasing your time investment in Facebook. Totally unbiased, I'm sure. Pay no attention to the fact that their advertising pricing model is literally driven by the level of user engagement desired by the advertiser. In other words, if Facebook can find a way to get its users more engaged on their platform, they can generate higher revenues from local and national advertisers. Yep, totally unbiased, totally altruistic, thinking of nothing but the welfare of their client base. Phase three seeks to accomplish two primary goals. First, it strives to increase the amount of time users spend engaging on Facebook. In so doing, the company is also seeking to increase profit margins since its pricing model is predicated on the engagement it can promise to its advertisers. If users are more engaged, the company can drive up gross revenues. Now, who would the true beneficiary of that PR campaign be? Wouldn't it be Facebook? Their own researchers are acknowledging their program is bad for the general public, and the proposed solution is to create greater user dependency in the marketplace. This is simply brilliant. Never forget, the number one goal of Facebook is to create and maintain an addiction for its product. Phase 1, F. Phase two, F. Phase three, F. Where's the concern for the welfare of the average American? Now, how can I say with certainty that the number one goal of Facebook is to create an addiction for its product? Well, here we go with phase four of Facebook's strategic plan, expanding accessibility to young children. 
Now, Facebook wisely launched phase four of their strategic plan about a week and a half prior to formal acknowledgement by company insiders that social media use can be harmful to public health. But allegations that social media might not be a public good due to its addictive nature has long been speculated. So the fact that they would get out in front of the research is rather telling. Facebook's rollout of Messenger Kids targets the impressionable eyes and minds of children. Here's an excerpt from this formal press release. We're rolling out a preview of Messenger Kids, a new app that makes it easier for kids to safely video chat and message with family and friends when they can't be together in person. After talking to thousands of parents, associations like National PTA, and parenting experts in the U.S., we found there's a need for a messaging app that lets kids connect with people that they love, but also has the level of control parents want. Whether it's using video chat to talk to grandparents, staying in touch with cousins who live far away, or sending mom a decorated photo while she's working late to say hi, Messenger Kids opens up a new world of online communication to families. I took a look at some of the features of Messenger Kids, and it basically enables kids the ability to use all kinds of emojis to paint up their photos, to make themselves look like dinosaurs. It's got to be the most exciting and riveting thing you could imagine as a five or six-year-old. So Facebook found that there's a need for a messaging app and a need to open up the world of online communication to families. Social media is harmful to public health, and Facebook's official stance is to increase accessibility to kindergartners? Facebook contends that they are all about community, but their four-pronged strategic plan sure sounds like they're all about expanding profits, perhaps even at the expense of exploiting the most vulnerable members of our society. Can you really not see how little they care about this research? Four strategic actions, four Fs on the report card. You don't ever judge men by their words. You always judge them by their actions. The Abbott Speaks podcast is dedicated to explaining the essence of human nature. So listen carefully, because what I want to give you is a truism that you will be able to apply when conducting your own research and your own analysis in search of personal wisdom and enlightenment. Ready? Here it is. Secular humanists always double down. In other words, the individuals who hold a worldview that human nature is essentially good and man is the absolute sovereign will always double down on their solutions to repair and ultimately improve society. Why, you ask? Well, until you can appreciate that you are a contributor to all of society's problems, you will always believe the solution lies in fixing the outside environment. If you are constantly fixated on repairing the outside environment, you will never acknowledge the weaknesses, the brokenness, or the shortcomings that live within you. Mark Zuckerberg's solution? You have to use my product. You just haven't been using it correctly. Do you remember the second episode of the Abbott Speaks podcast? The very second thing I talked about the truth about communism, one essential truth and one deceptive lie. Remember the lie? The lie was, communism's just never been tried correctly. The truth is it works. That's a very deceptive lie, and isn't it striking? That's the same thing Zuckerberg's doing right now. It's not that Facebook doesn't work, it's just that it hasn't been used appropriately. 
really gives a little insight into my theory that communism is not, first, an economic system, but it is a religious belief system. It is faith in the unseen. So it only makes sense that those people who have a soft spot for communism in their hearts will then champion initiatives of their own making and apply the same religious belief structure to them. That's what we're seeing here. Mark Zuckerberg and his virtual communication warriors are absolutely convinced that the creation of their own hands holds the answer to the holes that we have throughout our culture. But research, common sense, and increasing numbers of reports are showing that the more time spent on Facebook, the more dissatisfied users find themselves in life. Yet in spite of this trend, Zuckerberg and his team are doubling down on their conviction. Facebook's ultimate solution is for you to deepen your engagement with the virtual instrument that its own researchers suggest is harmful to your health. Facebook's ultimate solution is to start the addiction process earlier. Facebook appears convinced that improving our society involves overthrowing the time-tested method of person-to-person engagement. Facebook has no concern whatsoever with replacing authentic human contact with virtual forms of human exchange. Last week, we explored how Facebook downgrades human exchange, and this week, we explored how Facebook is a technological drug. Before I officially conclude this podcast, this episode two of six that I have, I need to talk about Snapchat. Snapchat is a messaging app and a form of social media that is largely catered to adolescents, teenagers, young adults. One of Snapchat's more innovative features is employ something that is called streaks. So when you talk to your friend through Snapchat for a day, two days, three days, four, five, ten days in a row, you start to get this fire icon that shows that you have had a streak of so many days communicating with your children or with your friend. What this does is it incentivizes our adolescents and our teenagers to continue and deepening their engagement with social media. I've actually heard stories from a coworker about his child's friend giving her phone to a friend so that they could continue the streak while they went on vacation because they weren't allowed to bring their phone with them. That's unbelievable. Also, they could maintain that streak, maintain the engagement, maintain the illusion that they're communicating with their friend. But again, none of it's in person. What is the true value? How authentic is that? Could there be a better way of discounting or cheapening the value of communication? We've already cheapened sex through pornography. Now we're cheapening communication by streaks? Reformatting human communication. Again, we're looking into the future. I'm not throwing the past to where Snapchat is today. How can you not see that that's the direction it's going? More and more young people are going to use it. More and more young people are going to be captivated by streaks. It's an amazing way to drive an addiction for your product. To those of you who are new to the program, please note I chose not to repeat a lot of the arguments I've already made on this point. They are covered in the two-part masterpiece series that I published a couple of months ago. We are in the midst of a very deep dive into the contributions that social media makes upon American culture. And I really encourage you, please give a second listen to each installment of this series. 
If you enjoy my program, if you value my opinion, don't forget that I contend this is the gravest threat facing American culture. There is so much meat in each program that it warrants multiple listens to digest the subject matter. Remember, there's no commercials in this program, no advertising. You really want to search for wisdom? I've got tough news for you. It's not easy to come by. If you, let's just say, maybe zoned out during a few minutes of the podcast, or you're driving and maybe something else caught your attention, you're going to be missing critical information to digest my arguments. So please, take the time to listen to these programs again and start with the episode entitled, You Are a Masterpiece. This is one of the best programs that I was able to put out. Now remember, I have now only made just one third of my argument as to why social media is the gravest threat facing our culture. This is pretty intense, isn't it? Just think, we still have four installments yet to go. Now, with the release of season two of this young program, I hope you'll indulge me in piloting a new method of signing off. If you're a long-term listener, you understand and appreciate the binary essence of life. So after recording this program, I found the best method in which I can balance content that can be heavy in nature is to serve something up more on the lighter side. So for the next 10 episodes, I'm going to bring you the 10 best songs that you've never heard of. You like this program because it does not conform to the general format of all the talking heads. I don't waste time with advertising. I stay away from pop culture. I don't feature content that analyzes the latest tweets made by celebrities and other secular humanist correspondents. This is the best podcast you have never heard of, so it only makes sense to bring you the 10 best songs you've never heard of. Now, what genre should I start with? I spent some time thinking about how I should start the countdown, and to me, it just made sense. You love my program. I love my audience. It's a love song. How could I not kick off our countdown with a song that reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and remained there for four weeks? As my wife was pregnant with our second child, I actually put the song on repeat so I could memorize the words to this song in the event I was ever blessed with a daughter. God, of course, had other plans, but let's kick off our countdown and give you a taste of the 10th best song you've never heard of. Coming in at number 10, it's Herb Alpert with This Guy's In Love With You. Is it so? Don't let me be the last to know my What a beautiful song. Hard to believe it was recorded 50 years ago in 1968. Imagine what he would be thinking knowing that people are still getting satisfaction and joy out of the music that he wrote. That is the 10th best song that you have likely never heard of. Hopefully you enjoy the enhancements to the program. Now you have two things to look forward to next week. You now get to find out what the number nine, the ninth best song you've never heard of happens to be. 
and you get to hear the third installment of my six-part series as to why social media is the gravest threat facing American culture. Now, it's been a long time since I've had a chance to actually share with you some of my other work that I have out there. So um, if you have a chance, go head over to my website at abbottspeaks.com. Uh, you can pick up a copy of my book. So if I see any orders come in this week, I will more than happily sign them for you, get them out in the mail as soon as I possibly can, which is typically within a business day or two. So uh, pick up a copy of the book because if you're enjoying the podcast, you're going to love the book. I guarantee it. It'll make you think. It's unconventional. It's something that you haven't seen before. So support someone who is doing everything he can to improve the state of affairs in modern culture. That is all the time we have to spend together today, so I must bid you adieu. Be bold with your faith, strong in your convictions, and courageous in the workplace. Never forget, the number one goal of Facebook is to create and maintain an addiction for its product.